Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special crossover episode. What is this, a crossover episode? Uh, this episode will be sort of cross-podcasted on the podcasts of my co-hosts today. Um, my conspirators today, Nestor from Black Banner Magic, the occult leftist podcast, and Brett O'Shea from Rev Left Radio, Revolutionary Left Radio. Both great shows you should check out if you are interested in all this stuff. Um, Black Banner is a great show. I was the first ever guest on. It's about, you know, lefty stuff and spooky stuff. Rev Left Radio, if you have not listened, is an uh, incredible resource. One of the OG podcasts. I'm a huge fan of it. It's always great to work with Brett. Um, just a quick heads up. If you are a regular listener of our show, if you're listening to this on the Pod Damn America feed, then you will notice that this week's episodes are out of order. Usually our bonus episode is earlier in the week and our uh, main episode, our public episode is later. Well, I had to switch them around because what happened is um, I put a lot of work into this show and there's a lot of content in it, but there's extra stuff. The extra stuff is going to be the Patreon episode this week. So I had to put the main episode up first. That way it would make sense if you wanted to then go listen to the rest of it on the Patreon because um, chronologically the stuff we'll talk about on the Patreon will come a little bit after. The Mexican Revolution is a um, long thing that uh, ended badly, like Game of Thrones. Um, it didn't really, you know, happen, so there's... Uh, so we got to the main meat of what we're talking about in today's episode, but then there's kind of more, and then there's also dumb shit that I thought of afterwards. Um, but the main episode is here, right? Um, the other thing is that if you're a listener of our show and you bought merch, uh, just wanted to give you guys a heads up. If you're wondering where it is, uh, this is the first like month that we've had our merch store up. And so uh, for that reason, I think I'm still kicking the tires on this whole program. But uh, our original plan was to mail out everything at the end of the month, beginning of the month. So it's going to happen soon. Um, but if that's, if this is like crazy, I don't know how people usually do this. Uh, maybe I'll do two times a month. I'm doing it less. I wanted to mail out all our shit at the, at one day at the beginning of the month because I'm a coronavirus hero and not because I don't want to, and I'm lazy and all that shit. Um, coronavirus hero. Okay. So anyways, I'm really happy with today's episode. This is something that I've wanted to research and make into a thing for a long time because as we'll get into it there is some personal history for me in the Mexican Revolution it's pretty cool and also I think Nestor came upon some very interesting information <laughs> that uh not, that I fucking you might be the only person that I know that knows about which is really cool that relates to all this so there's an interesting thing for us to vamp on and also uh brett is a fucking really smart guy and so he's going to serve as a bit of a rock for us to uh you know to, to anchor ourselves off of in terms of just understanding the politics of the situation as we talk about this anyways without further ado enjoy the show I was pitching this as like, fuck a reply guy contest. It's like, hey, <laughs> many will enter, but few will win. And I won. I'm I'm the reply guy that won the OnlyFans game. <laughs> yeah. 
because I am nobody. The two of you obviously have an audience. Um, people are going to be listening to this like, the fuck is the weird guy? Uh, but uh, cannot let, can't let the silence win. You're the Carranza. You actually end up winning. And then uh, me and Brett get assassinated. <laughs> nice. Well, you got to grip it and rip it. So, um, <laughs> no, like, uh, because of the whole Rona thing, it's no longer safe to one of my favorite things to do is loiter around the bus stop and have drifter conversations. And my show is pretty much that it's a bunch of drifter conversations. That's where I will be positioning myself in the show, but let's get on with it. Um, my name's Nestor and I host uh, black banner magic podcast. It's a crossroads between the ethereal meeting, the material conditions of our exoteric existence. And this is a huge crossover episode for me. I got, Jake Flores from Poddam America. Hey, how's it going? Hey, and Brett from Revolutionary Left Radio. Hello, happy to be here. I uh, I should really up my game and try to get, I don't know, use that uh, Crimson Ghost cultural critic podcast uh, theme and like shoot for Boris Johnson next week. I was going to say, you can use like chaos magic to uh, try to get bigger and bigger accounts on your show. Well, I think the first move I got to... I gotta change the name of the show from Black Banner Magic to Los Spookies of Roja. <laughs> Boris Johnson, I'm coming for you. Uh, um, all right, well, we're gonna be covering the 500 years of Mexican colonialism leading up to the Mexican Revolution. You know, it's it's history for the fellas today. Well, glad to be here, boys. Um, I have wanted to cover this in some sort of form for a long time. I'm glad we're doing it. Part of the reason that it's uh, so interesting to me is that the Mexican Revolution is, I mean, all politics aside, even just an incredible story that is, uh, you know, way less told than uh, the, you know, the big one that comes right after it in Russia. Um, And also, I have a piece of uh, myself in this story. I'm descended from uh, someone who we'll get to at some point later on in the podcast. So this is something that I feel kind of a duty to understand and be able to talk about. It's also just very cool. Um, And I don't know, I, I, you know, the quarantine has uh, allotted a lot of free time to be able to tackle this as a project. Um, It's profoundly interesting. And I don't know if you could really stretch and make that grand of an argument that it's incredibly relevant to anything that we're experiencing right now. But if you're a history nerd, you will see the various dynamics within the balances of power and the, you know, the opposing sort of uh, political theories in the story. And you'll see all sorts of Bernie Sanders's and Joe Biden's and, uh, you know, DNC's and things like that. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more, uh, <laughs> literally in battle with each other than, uh, what we're experiencing right now. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm really glad we're doing this. So thanks for having me. Yeah. And for, for my part, um, I'd like to, you know, echo just how fascinating this history is, how nuanced and, and complex it is. And even though there might not be specific things that we can readily apply to our current situation, um, as, as Jake alluded to, there is, there's just so much here that happens in every revolution, in every major class struggle. There are different factions. There are liberals. There's hardcore reactionaries and basically fascists. And there's revolutionaries. And they're all battling out over, you know, uh, basically a 10-year a, a period of the Mexican uh, revolutionary period. 
And, you know, there are winners, there's losers, there's everything in between. There's political assassinations, there's U.S. imperialism. So while the, while the spe specificities of the situation might not be readily uh, applicable, the general structure of class conflict and of revolutionary energies is always applicable um, as long as capitalism is the dominant class structure that we're, that we're dealing with. And I myself have a little family history tied into this as well. My wife's family is from Mexico. Um, my wife's dad's um, mother's side, the maiden name is Zapata. And the, the, the family lore is that they are direct descendants from Emiliano Zapata. Um, you know, in lieu of any actual like genetic 23andMe type shit, um, I, I can't really prove it. But it's a well-known family uh, story and, and they, they state it as casual fact. And so that would mean that my son... Um, is a direct descendant of Emiliano Zapata. So whether that's true or not, I choose to believe it's true. <laughs> and uh, I have a connection to Zapata sort of emotionally from that from that family history. So I I'm happy to be talking about this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we, it, people will talk about the, uh, the spirit of Zapata, and I think that'll become more relevant when we get further into the story. Um, myself, I, I have a slight uh, connection to it. My stepmom's family uh, fled just a few years after the breakout of the revolution from Guanajuato, which we'll find out plays a big ordeal in the, uh, the independence from Mexico before the revolution. Right. And you know, the other reason I've been thinking about this is because we are going to talk about, um, espiritismo and spiritualism and this, you know, vague sort of, uh, secular mystical concept. And, you know, that word spirit means, it can mean a lot of things, you know, it can mean literally a fucking spooky ghost or whatever. Um, but it also, you know, just on a, a, a linguistic, or not linguistic, but um, whatever, just a basic level, it does mean just the the vague, um, you know, passion and uh, sort of like motivations that drive a lot of these figures and a lot of these movements and I was thinking about that also because when I noticed oh Brett's got an ancestor in this and I've got an ancestor on uh the, you know it's it's really cool his is a, is a Zapatista or as is a Zapata actually <laughs> um mine worked with uh the Magone brothers you know you hear that and you think well that's a really cool coincidence and then you think wait is it a coincidence <laughs> is there uh some possibility that this is you know this literal spirit echoing through history i mean i didn't know that i just happened to be a guy who lives a pretty you know not similar but like not unsimilar life to the people that worked with the the mcgone brothers um obviously on a much sillier less um you know brave and dangerous <laughs> level but um, we'll get into some things that he did that are like, um, you know, you could make a, a, a joke at least about him being somewhat of an early podcaster. I mean, he was literally like a satirist and, uh, you know, ran these newspapers and, um, you know, was subversive and did it all DIY. So I don't know. I feel as I've read all this history and, uh, you know, become accustomed with it and used it to gather a framework of how a state you know, is formed and how it affects the people that live in it and how that relates to my life, uh, I really feel this concept of spirit. And I think we should start this story 
there because something that I noticed while reading about this and thinking about, you know, Black Banner Pod and all this stuff and what we're going to kind of use as an allegory or like a central metaphor here, I noticed that in the story of the Mexican Revolution, there is something really interesting regarding mysticism. There are different factions that are in conflict with each other in terms of being either, um, you know, influenced by the Catholic Church and fighting for, you know, even like monarchy and thus a very um, ordered and imperialistic version of mysticism. There are also people that are completely anti-mysticism, like the Scientificos that we'll get to, that are um, sort of trying to break with that tradition and what they've perceived to be the negative aspects of it on society. And then there's this third faction in this third direction, which is that, you know, a big part of this story is indigenous people who were interrupted in their lives by colonialism, by, you know, the Spanish, which led to all of this. And they had mysticism in obvious in, in, you know, in these, uh, in these like, um, what do you call it? Uh, more agrarian societies. Right. And so something that I thought was really interesting, and I think might be a good place to start when talking about this is, um, Catholic Mexican Latin imagery. Um, specifically, I wanted to talk about the, uh, lady Guadalupe, which you have seen, if you're listening to this, a million times in your life, I'm sure. It's the tattoo, it's the thing on the candle you get at the Mexican grocery store, it's on murals all over town, you know, depending on where you live in the U.S. Um, you know the one, right? The Lady Guadalupe, the saint lady with, uh, you know, the plant behind her and the rays and all that stuff. Um, it's everywhere, and I don't think everyone really knows exactly where it comes from. It's one of those cool images that permeates throughout our society. So... To illuminate that a little bit, if you don't know, it's an example of something that's really interesting regarding colonialism. So the Spanish came, you know, and, uh, you know, we all know the story. I mean, they came, they killed a bunch of people, they took land, um, and they imposed uh, Catholicism on indigenous people in Mexico, right? But the thing that's really interesting about this is that indigenous people in Mexico from, um, you know, the Aztecs and then the people that lived under the Aztecs were kind of resistant to this and successfully resistant. They really did not take to having this, um, new religion imposed upon them, but they sort of made, uh, various, what do you call them? Like concessions, right? Um, you could get people to sign on to Catholicism if you allowed them to keep some of their ancient traditions, myths, and images in their new practice of Catholicism. So what was formed was sort of like a fusion between a lot of Aztec stuff and a lot of this traditional Catholic church stuff. And an example of that is the Lady Guadalupe, right? Lady Guadalupe, what we have now is, um, you know, this image of this woman who's supposed to look a lot like the Virgin Mary and but she's a little bit darker skinned she's mestiza right and if the Catholic Church is asked to explain it they'll tell you well there was um there were some darker skinned images of this woman in Spain in the town where a lot of the conquistadors came from and they saw you know when they came to the new world and saw people with this darker skin, they saw it as like a sign and they said, Oh my God, we should use this as, you know, the symbol for this great thing, this great community community we started. Right. But that's not actually the story. That's just a story the church tells you. The real story is that when they were imposing Catholicism on these people, um, 
there was an Aztec myth that sort of wormed its way into this image. And the myth is based around, let me see if I can find it. Um, it's based around this priest named Juan Diego, who was made a saint later on in 2002 because of the story. Um, it revolves around the restoration of a temple in honor of, I think, Coalique is how you pronounce it, which is a woman called Serpent Skirt, who is analogous to Mary's virgin story in a lot of ways. So the Serpent Skirt lady was <laughs> impregnated in her myth by a ball of feathers that fell on her while sweeping a temple. She was married to Quetzalcoatl and already had 400 kids when this was happening. And uh, <laughs> they attacked her for cheating on her husband, right? So her kids attacked her because she cheated by getting this ball of feathers falling on her, <laughs> which got her pregnant. Um, the uh, myth goes that they decapitate her. There's a lot of human sacrifice in Aztec religion. It's very brutal, very gory. Gods are sort of born by being sacrificed. Um, and immediately her fully grown son emerges from her uh, and becomes like, the sun like s-u-n in this myth that's the origin story for the sun for this uh specific place and time um and he fights against the children and he decapitates the attacking daughter and throws her head into the sky and that becomes the moon um he fights all these other people and throws their heads into the sky and those become the stars and then that's the myth of how we have the fucking moon and stars right um pretty cool now the reason that this is uh, something that specifically I wanted to bring up has little to nothing to do with maybe the political grander things we're going to be talking about here. It's just that it's really fucking cool. Serpent Skirt is, as an image, it's a woman who has bird claws for legs. She has eagle eyes on those claw feet things. She obviously has a bunch of rattlesnakes for a skirt. She wears a belt with a skull on it. Uh, for a buckle, and then she's just nude from the torso up, everything out, and uh, because, you know, she has a fertility symbol, and um, her <laughs> torso is also covered in a necklace made of human hands and hearts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on top of all of this, her head and hands have been cut off, so she's just a decapitated woman with all this crazy shit going on. You know, she looks like the end of Hereditary, and she's lurched over in, like, an attack stance. From her neck hole, there are two snakes sprouting out of her head, like, sort of talking to each other. And there's also snakes coming out of her hand holes. <laughs> yeah, it's badass. Um, so the funny thing about this story is that uh, later on, some people from the Spanish church actually dug up a painting of this. And they buried it again because they didn't want anyone to know that this is what the Lady <laughs> of Guadalupe was actually based on. Because they said it was, like, satanic and terrifying. So, whenever you see that symbol, that's what is being, like, carried through history, through the Catholic Church. No matter how much they fought it, there's still, like, a secret image in here, almost like Masonic style or something. Not really for, like, a specific political agenda, but just because these images are the way that these people understood their world. And they had this thing come upon them and try to take that away from them and tell them, no, you're going to understand the world through art our symbols and our images and they maintained they survived this you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. the spirit survived after the people died let's begin there right so this obviously probably plays into what you could say might be uh, something important to the start of this whole story um which is 
Father Hidalgo and the uh, Cry of Dolores. Um, does anyone know like maybe more details about uh, what led up to this sort of thing? I know that he was involved in sort of a, um, like I'm describing, a fusion of Catholicism and, uh, you know, ancient mystic stuff. Um, uh, he, his version of Catholicism, if I'm understanding, also was... Uh, you know, left. It was uh, radical and sort of included ideas about redistributing agrarian land and stuff like that, um, which is why his, you know, declaration of revolt was uh, so rallying and so right. powerful. Yeah, so he wrote the uh, Cry of Dolores in 1810, but before that, uh, he was a, where he, his whole life, he was a secular priest, but um, he wasn't like the ascetic monk type. Um, he owned multiple haciendas. And he was actually really wealthy for a priest, and uh, he believed. But he believed in like social justice. He was a social justice warrior. Uh, <laughs> he believed that the the peasants should benefit from the labor, and uh, he because he was literate because most. Uh, literate people were in the clergy um he he taught himself agriculture um he learned the newest agricultural techniques to maximize crop yields and there were certain crops that the peasants weren't allowed to grow because they were imports from spain and that was a huge business he taught them how to grow olives how to grow grapes how to grow uh, all kinds of different crops that were forbidden and that really pissed off the crown um hidalgo was an anti-monarch monarchist um which was like heresy for priests because priests throughout history have always been the backbone of the state's authority. And um, when he, he was uh, butting up against the the state, butting up against uh, the Catholic church. And basically he was, uh, he was a rebel priest. He wrote the cry of Dolores to um, get the peasants to rise up and topple the monarchy and him and a few other like key people were gathering supplies, gathering guns, uh, talking to people, spreading the word um, through fostilizing uh, the the ideas of if you own your own labor, then why do you need a king? The divine right of kings isn't anywhere in the Bible. Show me in the Bible where it says that we need to pay fealty to this guy that came over and said that this is mine now. And, um, one of his major points, even though slavery wasn't like widespread as it was in the U.S., um, he he was an abolitionist because the haciendados used domestic labor in their homes. They didn't do uh, – it wasn't uh, crop slavery. It wasn't like plantation slavery. It was like maids and uh, uh, servants in the house, and he wanted to abolish that slavery. He thought it was an affront to God, and – uh, he he gives this speech, the cry of Dolores. Hundreds of people flock around him, and the next morning he gives the same speech to an even bigger crowd, and he whips the crowd up into a a, a fury, and they start marching onto uh, the capital city, um, Guanajuato. Thirty thousand people marching. For, it was like a a week long march, and within a week, their numbers had doubled. To, uh, somewhere around 60,000. I've seen estimates of up to 90,000, but I think that's exaggerated. But, uh, of course, when there's 30, 60, 90,000 people marching on your city, uh, you call up the troops and you have them assassinated. So about a third to a half of that group that was marching, uh, like 
holding the sign of Holy Mother Guadalupe um, marching on. They didn't actually, the, the, uh, the mob didn't really see it as an attack on the crown. They saw it as uh, defending the church. They saw it as defending uh, Father Hidalgo. So there was some miscommunication in there, but, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Um, <laughs> because they were just like half of them were just murdered in the street. Um, Hidalgo had retreated because he didn't want to see people die. It's not why he was rising up. He wanted to top of the monarchy with the power of the people. And um, they, they were going to march on to uh, Mexico city, which is South of uh, Guanajuato. But uh, Hidalgo assessed the situation. He um, realized I'm not leading these people into a bloodbath or, peasant farmers they don't know how to fight a war against a, an actual military a colonial military so he retreated but um that was his downfall because a year later uh, him and the other three main leaders uh the three leaders were shot in the back of the head uh intentionally to disgrace them uh, hidalgo had to go to a uh um spanish inquisition uh court and he was defrocked he was uh, kicked out of the church. Then he was shot and all four of them were beheaded and their heads were placed on the four corners of Guanajuato, uh, city hall basically, and stayed there for many years, rotting away in the sun as a warning. Don't do this again. Right. That's an image. Um, another note about the power of images and the role that they play in this. I forgot I had a couple more notes about the Guadalupe thing is that, um, this, like I said, the story the church told is that the reason that she was called Lady of Guadalupe was because Guadalupe was the name of that church in Spain where they had a little bit more of a swarthy image of the Virgin Mary. Right. Obviously, um, you know, if you remember the myth I just described, that is uh, something that is, uh, you know, analogous to a fertility myth. Right. Um, but there's another explanation that also might be possible, which is that the trans, uh, the translation of the Nahuatl word is, uh, Guatlasupe, I think I'm probably butchering it. I don't know how to speak that language, but, um, it means she who crushes the serpent. Um, <laughs> it's entirely possible that that is why they named it that. And that's also very cool. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is that this. This image, Guadalupe, came from a myth about restoring a temple, right? Um, and basically the myth is that this this other um, secular priest was, uh, you know, spoke visited by the Virgin Mary, and he sort of ignored the call. Like, he was like, no, 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 I'm not your guy, I'm not a good priest, I'm, uh, you know, you, you want to talk to somebody else, yada, yada, yada. Um, but she appeared to him again and again and eventually proved that she was the Virgin Mary to him by calling him by his biblical name, right? Um, because no one else knew it, I think. And his biblical name literally translates to the eagle who speaks. So people think that this myth is why there's an eagle on the Mexican flag. Hmm. Um, and I think there's another way that the sun plays into this, but uh, I don't know. I'll have to come back to that. Um, but yeah, images. Very cool. Yeah. So actually, because you're talking about that, actually, something really interesting. You, earlier, you were mentioning coincidences, and I, I couldn't help think of this when you were talking because I had no idea that this little part about the Lady of Guadalupe would be brought up in this conversation whatsoever. But weirdly, strangely enough, I'm literally wearing a shirt with the Lady of Guadalupe on right now that I just randomly grabbed out of my closet on the way over here. 
And yesterday, um, allegedly, um, my my wife, who is of Mexican descent, um, it, we we had a little small, basically magic mushroom trip. And uh, the, the candle that was lit next to her the whole time was one of those tall um, Lady of Guadalupe candles. And the, the magic mushroom has been known to play a role in, in sacred events um, in indigenous uh, people from Mexico for centuries. It's always been used in, in sacred and spiritualistic rituals. So it's just funny to think that we're, now that we're talking about this, and I had no idea that we were going to talk about this, the last 24 hours of my life have been you know really studded with this imagery of the Lady of Guadalupe specifically, which you can make That's of that what, what you will, about. but it's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, man. No, I'm, I'm all for it. It's great, and I think that uh, if I'm going to let my mind wander and entertain this a little bit, I mean, I, there is also a very, like, I hesitate to even use this word because it's a bit of a reach, but there's a, almost like an anarcho-primitivist bent to the, um, you know, the indigenous and, like, uh, Zapata later on, like, those people and what they're fighting against in this story, and I almost feel like we're in the end times right now with this whole coronavirus thing, and, you know... Maybe we're getting back there, you know? <laughs> Maybe that spirit is reaching out to us because it's 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 the dolphins that are taking over the, you know, the rivers and canals and stuff. Um, maybe the spirit of the earth is coming back to us and uh, this life that we live with all of our technology and iPads and laptops and phones is coming to a close. I hope not, but well, yeah, we'll see. Speaking of the end of the world, so uh, there was... Uh, so the, the Spanish... Um, colonialization was being uh, perpetrated by the Habsburg dynasty, the, you know, the huge chinned giant, weird, freaky looking Jay Leno royalty. Um, they were, they were the, the Catholic monarchy and uh, the English monarchy was the Protestant monarchy. Uh, that's somewhat of the, the stem of the Catholics versus Protestants war. But um, there was a, idea of um omen um uh, excuse me uh omenology so deriving meaning from uh different omens and in uh 1577 there was a a newly discovered comet that lit up the entire sky across europe like from uh far reaches of serbia or not serbia uh um uh shit russian uh, Gulag area. <laughs> I completely spaced on the name of the Siberia. Siberia. Yeah. Siberia so yeah. from Siberia all the way to uh, the English uh, island, the island of Fashi Island. Um, anyway, so in 1950 or uh, 1577, this newly discovered comet blazed across the sky all across Europe, scared the shit out of every mystic, astrologer, scientist that saw it because holy fuck is it going to hit us um and i'll come back to that but uh in december 2019 there was a newly discovered comet just as the coronavirus was being determined not to be just like common flu or really bad flu uh a new comet was discovered headed towards earth i think it's passing maybe next week or the week after that but it's a safe distance away of course um and the man that uh, when we get to it, uh, Francisco Madero had also spotted a, a new comet um, in uh, 1910, just as the revolution was kicking off. So there's this idea of comet omenology uh, factoring into the Mexican Revolution and uh, the 
Catholic versus Protestant war and the uh, the coronavirus. So hopefully we're not in the end times, but the comments seem to say otherwise. I'm or at least it. Fascinating. Cut myself off real quick here and limit the amount to which I talk about this because it will be annoying and unnecessary, but I did destroy my mind for many years by watching and reading the Game of Thrones books and TV show. And if you know anything about George R.R. R. Martin, what he says he based those stories on, um, you know, he based them on actual history. I think he says it's the War of the Roses. But the entire time I was reading about the Mexican Revolution, man, I could not get it out of my head that he lives in the Southwest and he has to have read about this because he's a history nerd. And I, it, th- there's a fucking comet in Game of Thrones <laughs> at the beginning of everything. And there's also this series of events that really parallels what happens with just people trying to get on the damn, you know, the throne of presidency in uh, the story of the Mexican Revolution. So, I mean, I won't do it, but just if you're a nerd and you're into that <laughs> shit, the, you, you can impose some figures on various, uh, you know, uh, fallen revolutionaries and angry generals and all sorts of people in this story. Um, I'll share my theories on Twitter. I won't taint this podcast with If you'll <laughs> indulge me on a little uh, drifter conversation, um, speaking of those comments, so if anybody listening is just like, oh, that's three events that just happened to coincide and say you're reading way too much into it um one of the the people that spotted that comment uh john d he was a an alchemist a mathematician astrologer philosopher diviner he was a polymath um but most importantly he was queen elizabeth the first advisor and beginning in uh 1570 he was urging her uh on behest of the angels he was talking to to spread the British influence into the quote-unquote new world, meaning uh, the uh, area that Spain was currently occupying. And he said it was to defend against Catholic encroachment into Protestant Britain, because at that time, Britain was not the major empire it was. In fact, uh, John Dee coined the phrase, uh, the idea of British empire. So, uh, when that comet flew over and uh, every mystic was shitting their pants uh, or their pantaloons, whatever they were wearing, the robes, um, <laughs> including uh, Johannes, uh, I think I'm saying this right, Johannes Kepler. Uh, he was a, a German um, astrologer and uh, astrophysicist, or I guess not an astrophysicist at the time, but essentially what he was doing was that. Um, and he, when he saw this at a young age, it, uh, constantly kept his attention to the point where he dedicated his entire life to studying the planets. Um, he eventually uh, founded the laws of planetary motion that proved um, Copernicus's theories about heliocentric uh, rotation instead of the earth being at the center of the universe. It was now like Copernicus thought that couldn't prove it. Um, Johann Kepler did prove it and uh, a generation later. So anyway, um, I, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. In, uh, in 1588, uh, the Spanish Armada set sail for Britain, which kicked off the 80 years war. They intended to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. And that was exactly what John Dee had uh, seen in the astrological uh, charts he was reading and the, uh, the angels he was scrying with um, was that the, the Catholics were going to be coming to overthrow the Protestants. So, uh, the British and Spanish monarchy were at war with each other, but also 
when that uh, 1577 comet went across the sky, um, there was an Ottoman uh, Polly Matthews basically doing the same job as John D. He worked for the Sultan Marad uh, III, and when he was tracking the comet, he predicted that it would be the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which mostly came true when the Treaty of Constantinople in 1590 was signed, and they lost a majority of their their empire, and they lost it to the Habsburgs, which had overtaken uh, uh, Latin America. So Dee was smart enough to get close get close to Queen Elizabeth um, because in uh, just a few years earlier she had written the elizabethan act against conservations enchantments and witchcraft it was the the witch hunt so i'm bringing all this up because uh first we need to lay out the material conditions that history says caused the revolution and not just the the out there woo woo um and the history books say that the cause of the revolution was the porphyriata so who wants to know who and what the Periodo is. <laughs> um, maybe let's talk about some events that led right up to it um, quickly, though, because there's a lot of history to cover. Um, so after there's sort of an initial Mexican independence, um, there are a series of like regencies, like council governments. Um, there's a straight-up Mexican emperor. And uh, eventually France just comes and pokes its ass into the situation and installs an, uh, their own emperor, uh, Maximilian. Right. Uh, that During that whole time you were just talking about, right? Um, and eventually he's ousted. And the entire time that he's in uh you know on the th- what is now a throne i suppose um there is benito juarez who does not recognize him withstands the whole thing and also endures a civil war between reformists and liberals so another big uh theme in all of these uh conflicts is you know i mean there are a few of them but like one of them is there are these reformists who are conservative who will go as far as to defend the monarchy, um, the colonization and everything. And there are liberals who are, you know, basically more for like a um, decentralization. Uh, obviously, they're fighting sort of against this colonizing power. Um, and we'll get eventually into, you know, that being stretched into something more akin to federalism where they're talking ironically from the left about like states rights and shit like that. Um, Juarez endures and uh, I'm not going to get into the details because there are just so, so fucking many like overthrows and coups and presidents that last a year or whatever. Um, (laughs) Check out the Wikipedia page for Mexican presidents. It's insane. Uh, Benito Juarez is I think officially the 26th president of Mexico. This is pretty early into them being Mexico and the reason for that is not that there are 23 presidents that came before him that are all different guys it's literally like Santa Ana every other time and they're just constantly rotating and uh, you know very few of them actually finish a term uh, for various reasons political and mortal Um, (laughs) uh, but this eventually ends in um, sort of uh, Benito Juarez does he die or does he just uh, not win his election I can't remember um, Porfirio Diaz wins an election, comes in after uh, the interim president, after Juarez, and is um, running, ironically, on this slogan of no re-election, because everyone's really worried about there being like a 
a Mexican dictator since they just got rid of a fucking emperor and everything. And you'll see why that's ironic as we get into the Furiato, which is the 35-year reign of this supposedly democratically elected uh president porfirio diaz he wins every election for 35 years obviously you know something's up with that right um and diaz diaz fought in the uh in this sort of national liberation struggle was it to kick out the french so he was sort of seen as a radical revolutionary figure at one point in his life and then became the uh the dictator that he's known in history yeah first it was the civil war and then he staved off the the french uh invasion and he was seen as like a, a national hero because he saved the the people from the uh, the French installed uh, Maximilian Habsburg. So yeah, he was popular, um, but he yeah. that's why he continued winning. Almost like without fail, I think every single figure that eventually ascends to the presidency in the Mexican Revolution, kind like not all not all of them exactly like this, but basically a recurring theme that happens over and over again is that. You rise to the presidency on the power of uh, a bunch of people who believe in you as being this reformer and being in revolt and then immediately become a turncoat once you're in power. And that is absolutely what Porfirio Diaz did. He's like, um, I, I don't know, I wouldn't compare him to, well, I don't, there's no one in American history to compare him to because we never had a 35-year-long dictator. But, um, you know, but, but he definitely, uh, you know, became someone who, who said no rev, no. Uh, re-election with a bit of an ironic smirk after a while you know he was jailing people left and right for making fun of him and stuff and uh <laughs> saying you know democracy no re-election mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of that that well-known bakunin quote um if you took the most ardent revolutionary vested him in absolute power within a, a year he would be worse than the czar himself and it's just sort of gesturing to this fact of like yeah you can see these at one point revolutionary radical figures get invested with a bunch of political power and turn to to dictators and in some cases the very things that they you know in previous uh decades fought against so it is, it is sort of an echo of that uh, bakunian critique absolutely and that is why uh, a little bit later in the story we will get to um anarchists and i think it is no coincidence that anarchism found fertile ground in what was happening in Mexico because, um, you know, even to this day, Mexican politics are, um, you know, riddled with corruption and people seem to understand that this just a fact of life is that the people in power are going to be fucking corrupt. So you can see how that would lead people to go, okay, well, the government just is the fucking problem here. And it's no matter how many times you try it, it will always corrupt. And something I don't think we've mentioned yet, uh, at the risk of being accused of being fashion adjacent, uh, we have to uh, bring up the the social, like ethnic uh, caste system that was installed by uh, Spain that kept a lot of people out of politics. Like even uh, people that owned land weren't allowed to be in politics. So the real quickly, they had uh, peninsulares. They were uh, Spaniards that were born in Spain, living in New Spain. They were basically the nobility land-owning colonizers. Then uh, Criollo were born in New Spain, but they were two Spaniard parents, so they were like first generation. Uh, Castizos were um, mestizos that were mixed with uh, a Spaniard born in New Spain, and then a mestizo is indigenous with uh, Spanish or European ethnicity. Mulatto is um, 
mixed indigenous with uh, either African or Spanish, and then the indigenous people who uh, were both um, pre-Columbian and even pre-Aztec peoples. And only the Peninsulares, for most of the time, ran the whole show. Um, the Criollos actually were uh, somewhat um, supportive of the revolution because they wanted political power as well. So they thought, well, we'll go with the bigger group of people that's going to overthrow the one group. And uh, then we'll see how the, like the Criollos were turning on other people as soon as they could. Yeah. I mean, like so often is the case in history, a lot of the, you know, quote unquote revolutionary figures that we're going to talk about here come from the upper part of the caste system and also obviously the upper part of the class system there are a lot of people that are educated and able to read a lot of history and theory and stuff but there are also going to be a bunch of just peasant revolutionaries um but uh the reason i brought that up is because the caste system is important to understand if you live in america and you think of race in really american terms something about um you know colonization of latin america is that it created this sort of um combined class and race system and so you know you have like various people within this system um moving from one part of the cast to the other not like by changing the color of their skin but like people are trying to appear whiter in a lot of ways to associate with a higher class um it's something that i think about a lot as a you know of a pale mexican i'm i'm half white my mom's a white woman and my dad's mestizo and uh and i think about it a lot because you know there there is a like a a reason that people try to achieve whiteness <laughs> because mm-hmm. you have more power, right? And so, like, I remember growing up, my dad sometimes would, you know, we'd all be driving in a car and he'd say, like, we're white. And then we'd all look at him and go, well, you're not. Like, you're the one in this car that <laughs> can't really make that case. <laughs> but his desire to be white, I think, came from, like, you know, it's, it's, this is still in place, this system. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah. And, um, um, go ahead. Uh, That's a pattern that holds in uh, legacies of colonialism the world over, but specifically in in Central and South America to this day, when you look at, um, you know, like the reactionary forces in Venezuela or the Christian fascists who successfully overthrew um, uh, the um, Morales in Bolivia, right? It's it's always this this deeply connected colonial history of race and class, and it's the it's the colonizers, the descendants of the colonizers that are often the the uh, you know the elite, the the landed the landed elite that have all the land and and um, you know that have the that are on top of the class hierarchy basically. And um, in in Venezuela specifically, that very much holds true. There was that incident in in Venezuela uh, two years ago, I think, where um, the the reactionary fascist forces would just go out and they would look for people of of color, you know, and they they found a black man and they burned him alive in the street because they they saw his blackness as being synonymous with with being a chavismo, with supporting Hugo Chavez and Maduro and the Bolivarian revolution. So that cast of race and class still very much exists all throughout Central and, and South America. Yeah, and you see it in like, you know, Porfirio Diaz being uh, up or higher on the cast and like Benito Juarez was um, closer to the bottom and uh, you didn't talk about it much and also so when Porfirio Diaz is in power he's doing a lot of things that connect to industrialization coming from the north so he's bringing in you know these new inventions and 
trains and power lines and things like that. And all of this is having a direct effect on the, you know, forcing of people in indigenous communities like um, Morelos, where Zapata is from. Um, you know, he's bringing in capitalism via technology and they're resisting it. And the color lines are very direct here. I mean, he's a white man bringing in, um, business and trying to force these people out of their way of life. And so, you know, it's not direct one-to-one, but there is definitely like a, you know, a, 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 like a indigenous reaction to capitalism and technology coming in. Yeah. And at the time when uh, they, when Perferio Diaz was selling off land to U.S. Uh, corporations, um, there was a point when there were so many U.S. corporations that owned land that he started worrying that the U.S. was going to usurp them. So he started uh, playing the British and the French on the U.S. by selling more British uh, land rights, more French land rights. All these Anglo countries were uh, being pitted off each other, but then those countries were obviously taking ancestral lands from uh, people that had grazing rights for a millennia. They had paperwork, documented uh, land rights that go back a thousand years. And during the uh, the Spanish colonialization, those were actually most times held up in court. Like if uh, if a village would come and say, hey, these people are taking our land. We have documentation showing we have over a thousand years on this land. This, this is ours. They'll get ruled in favor for that stopped with the Feriado. It was just who can pay the most and who's going to pay right now. Right. Porfirio Diaz brought in, um, you know, outside commercial interests via uh, agriculture through what's called the uh, haciendas and then the rulers of them, the hacendados. So like someone like Zapata lived in uh, what's called a campesino where the system was, you know, basically hunter-gatherer shit almost. Like, I mean, they had farming though, but uh, with the thing that comes after hunter-gatherer shit, I guess – more specifically, which is that that communal farming, like you would, you know, everyone would get together on Wednesday and uh, harvest my crops. And then the next on Thursday, we would all get together and harvest Nestor's crops. And then we go around the village like that. And everyone would, um, you know, just distribute their own shit that way. It was not obviously brought in and uh, exploited via someone from the top, but Perfio Diaz brought in these people who took them over and turned them into haciendas. And those people were called the hacendados. And so all of Mexican land went from being very like uh, publicly owned like that via, you know, just you live on it to like 50 rich people own all of them. Um, he also brought in people to uh, mine silver and turned peasants into basically indentured servitudes under a system known as peonage because um, silver was what I think money was backed by at the time. Uh, this was like really disrupted when, um, you know, what, what's his face? William Jennings Bryant or something in uh, mm-hmm. the U.S. Uh, proposed backing it with gold. Um, and he enforced all of this with uh, a really corrupt political system. So one thing that ended up actually being his downfall is that he didn't have people that were extremely loyal to him. He actually liked to keep people in his government and in his military in conflict with each other as a way of maintaining his own power. And he paid people off, and so he had like these guys known as um, jefes politicos, like political bosses, literally, who you know would just sort of keep the rule of law in around the country. And 
this, uh, like I said, all comes down. Uh, it, it's the reason that the whole thing comes crashing down like a house of cards eventually, because nobody actually fucking likes the guy. Right. And his system of doing yeah. that was uh, pan Apollo bread or stick, because you could either give somebody a bunch of land, uh, make them uh, or let them uh, farm it out, let them make a bunch of money. But if they cross you, beat them into the poorhouse or where she had a grave. So if you're ruling with an iron fist, you're going to have a bunch of enemies and not many supporters, which comes to find out that's not how you run a country. Yeah. And, and you can also just sort of zooming out and thinking about the, the land sell off, you know, these terms like primitive accumulation and closure of the commons, you know, processes by which capitalism often in the guise of colonialism take over um, territory. And in the case of, of land, you know, Diaz is selling off land that's been communally, you know, um, dealt with for, for centuries that have long ancestral family lines of people living on these lands and kicking that, you know, those people off, indigenous people off their land and selling it to imperialist, you know, corporations and non-nationals is a process that takes place in almost every colonial context. And so we see a leader in a country, you know, basically facilitating the enclosure of the commons, kicking people off their land and, and doing that just general primitive accumulation process that capitalism needs to get jump-started in a certain area. And so that's exactly what was happening here. Right. And this comes freshly after, you know, bucking this uh, parasitic monarchist thing. Uh, suddenly it re, you know, the, the, the dynamic of power reforms itself as it is so wont to do throughout history. This time not through the crown, but through, you know, cash, baby. Um, should we talk about Madero, I don't want to skip over anything, but this is where things start to get a little right. bit more lateral. So, uh, yeah, with uh, Madero coming into the picture, um, occasionally uh, Diaz would claim that he's not going to run for another term. He would uh, he would say, "Okay, well, I've been in power long enough. If I I love my people. I want them to have uh, a say in who runs the country." And then he would handpick his successor and make sure that they won. Um, they would do something stupid. They would screw up or they would cross uh, Diaz. He would publicly disown them. He's the, like for a lot of people in the Mexican revolution, it was the only leader they'd ever known. So he's like the father of the country, um, very patriarchal. And he would come down and he would publicly disown them. And he'd say, you know what? Mexico needs me. You need me. I can't uh, betray my people. I'm running again. He did that three times. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, yeah, you know, you need me. I you can't live. You can't live this way without me. So um, the last time he did that was in uh, 1908. He gave an interview to an English uh, or not an uh, English speaking uh, newspaper in the U.S. That, that's redundant. Anyway, uh, it was a paper where he kind of off the off the cuff said, no, I'm not running again this time. Um, I am retiring. Take my word. I'm retiring. And. Either he was slipping in his old age because he was 80 at that time, or uh, he just didn't think that it would be translated into Spanish. But, of course, it was, and it got spread around. It's called the Creelman Interview, if you want to read it. Um, it's an interesting insight into an old man giving up his power without realizing it, kind of like uh, Biden. Um, but uh, the last time he did this fake out, um, a bunch of people – put their hat in the ring like okay well i'm gonna run you said we we get open fair elections i'm gonna run well a lot of times 
they were groomed. Um, there were a couple of people that were working with Diaz uh, saying, oh, well, you know, I will carry on your legacy. We just need new blood in the in the legislature. And uh, Diaz was fine with that. He'd, he'd groom a couple of people, but then they would start getting out of pocket. And he's like, no, nah, you got to go away now. You're not you're not my successor. Um, Francisco Madero, he was running uh, basically unopposed, un, unimpeded because he was seen as a lunatic. He was uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the, the U.S. ambassador to uh, Mexico repeatedly called him a lunatic in public and in press. He's like, not a lunatic. Uh, he's not going to do anything. So nobody's paying attention to him. He's running unopposed until up to the point where um, he, he publishes a book in uh, 1909. It's called The Presidential Succession of 1910, the National Democratic Party. And uh, he outlines his political goals of like, expanding voting rights to everybody. And uh, the idealist view that liberals hold still to this day, saying that you can just vote out bad government. If we get good government, then you'll have a good system. And um, one of his... Uh, later plans was uh, land reform, which people were very for, but it was like way down at the bottom. It was like line second to the last. wasn't really land? that big of a deal. Land reform for the Mexican Revolution is kind of like Medicare for all or something, where people ru- kind of run on it, and then when they get in power, don't actually really do it. And uh, you have Zapata kind of being the only person that notices this and getting more and more alienated by it we'll get to him later but um madero is a a really funny figure because you know he's a rich kid and he's one of the richest people in mexico yeah and his his dad's you know like this really powerful rich guy and his kid is just you know went to college and became really interested in all this crazy stuff and um you know decides to mount this eventual revolt against uh diaz and no one's taking him seriously and I mean, his his parents are really kind of referring to him as kind of a joke and just going like, when are you going to stop doing this crazy thing you're talking about? And eventually he goes north of the border and, um, you know, is deciding to to come attack from the upward direction and his guns don't show up and, you know, nothing's working and it seems like he's going to have to call this whole fucking thing off. But eventually the northern rebels fall into his lap because there are just these um, these roving bands of often unpolitical uh, bandits in the north. And, you know, some of them are just pillaging and, uh, you know, they're just living in chaos. And some of them are starting to understand that there is a thing that they're fighting against, which is, uh, you know, the rich. Um, but I think before we get to them... We should talk a little bit about this thing that I know you have a lot of information on, Nestor, because I read about half of the book that you sent me. Um, it's pretty wild, which is Madero's Espiritismo. Um, can you please tell me about that? <laughs> yeah, so keep in mind what Jake just said about uh, going to right across the border and start the revolution. The guns don't show up. Um, the Mexican Revolution doesn't kick off because of uh, Madero, but because of Pancho Villa and other rebels in the north. So that I'll be coming back to that. But uh, yeah, uh, Madero studied in um, Paris and uh, Berkeley at UC uh, 
and then in uh, a school in Mexico. Um, so he traveled all over the uh, world. He wasn't really too much of a, a resident of Mexico until he returned from his studies. So it, I think that's kind of like a bourgeois thing that people did send your kids off to foreign country to get educated, come back and take over the Hacendado um, or the Hacienda. And uh, so it, when he, when uh, Madero was in Paris, he gravitated to like all the latest esoteric writings on spiritual matters. Um, he hung out in seance parlors of Paris, which isn't uncommon for Paris. It was littered with them. It was the, what's referred to as the great occult revival of the late 19th century. So it was just like going to the, the movies. Right. A, a pretty untold story. Yeah. A pretty untold story in us, you know, history books in like school and things like that is that there was a very popular, just kind of spooky occulty thing people would do. Uh, you would go to like spirit readings. Mary Todd Lincoln was really addicted to them after um, her husband died because she was trying to talk to him. Um, it was also it was popular among the rich. Like people look at tarot cards and think, you know, oh, there are these ancient crazy things or whatever. They were like a thing rich people would just do as a game to play with each other. Um, they, you know, before Crowley came and kind of decided to make them mystical, all of this stuff was, you know, depending on who you were, I think probably not super like serious like a fucking conviction like you know you would have in catholicism it's a cultural thing man and so madero is a rich guy and he gets into this shit because it's really popular at the time it's the way you know people in brooklyn are into astrology right now he gets into (laughs) fucking blavatsky and you know crowley and theosophy which is a thing that's happening at this time that i've talked about a lot on my show because it's like the origin point of a bunch of different things that are all crazy. Scientology kind of came out of it. A bunch of libertarian psychos, the guy who invented the new school. Um, at one point they were doing chants in the church of theosophy to try to like curse FDR and shit. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Rich people are fucking crazy. Yeah. And bring you up FDR. Uh, Madero is basically the Mexican FDR. Um, if you take FDR and Marianne Williamson and a little bit of, uh, Mr. Peanut Butter from Bojack Horseman. That's Madero. Um, but he, <laughs> he wasn't just uh, learning. Like when he went to Paris, he was already uh, on his path to being like this weird occult, spooky guy. Because his uh, he had two brothers named Raúl. I think he had fifteen siblings altogether. Um, he had two brothers named Raúl. The younger brother uh, died when he was a kid. I think he was like six or seven. He was swinging a stick around inside and he knocked over a kerosene lamp onto himself, burned to death. And uh, Madero spoke to his ghost like all through his life. Uh, So he spoke to his uh, younger brother, Raul, who his older brother was named in honor of his younger brother, which I find really weird. um, So, yeah, when he when he was in Paris, he already had this idea of like talking to spirits. Um, And like Jake said, it was not just. Uh, Paris, it was across England, it was across the Northeast United States, it was an aristocratic thing to do, it was uh, parlor tricks, basically. And um, the group that Madero fell into was the Spiritists, and there's two different groups that have similar names, Spiritist and spiritual, Spiritualism. The, um, the kind that was in the U.S. was Spiritualism, it was like uh, Ouija boards, spirit boards, seances, the spiritists had more of a philosophy and less of a like 
parlor trick uh, game to it because they uh, they believed that all living beings were immortal spirits and we only briefly inhabit corporeal bodies. Then we reincarnate uh, further intellectual and moral and social improvement, go back into a body, try to relive it again. It's uh, similar to Buddhism, um, but it comes from like a 17th century Christian theologian named Emanuel Swedenborg. And uh, hey, guess where he's from? Sweden, right? Um, Borg. <laughs> he's from Borg. <laughs> uh, so it's spiritist different from uh, Swedenborgism because Swedenborg was deathly afraid of contacting the dead. He thought that they were higher spirits that you, you rabble down here living in your trash body. Don't talk to the spirits. They've already ascended. Um, but the, the spiritists believed that they could speak to the, the dead, speak to the spirit of the dead and uh, pass messages, messages back and forth, um, get insight and better themselves by doing so. But Madero also found affinity in the, uh, Hindu scriptures of the Bhagavad Gita, which uh, had just recently been translated into Anglo languages when he arrived in Paris. Yeah, he was the, a rich uh, kid in college. He read the right, right. Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> the Absolutely. Bhagavad Gita, like <laughs> the son of, of the Song of God, uh, like synthesizing virtue and spiritual liberation. So uh, you start seeing where like this weird idealist liberal idea of like just vote out bad government. And, got to have virtue and morals and don't really play the political game just know that if you're if you're on the right path you'll do the right thing shit like that um so then uh madero was not really a politician and uh, everyone knew that he wasn't a politician so he was he was a politician on a moral quest he's basically a sock dim he was a very 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 rich sock dim and uh when he returned to mexico and uh, 1899, he joined a spiritist group and um, claimed to have saved his mother from typhoid fever by speaking to her spirit, uh, providing homeopathic treatments, and then she survived typhoid fever. I think maybe she just got over the typhoid fever. But uh, in 1909, he and his wife became vegetarian. They stopped drinking. They were teetotaler. Uh, they were operating a soup kitchen and providing scholarships like uh, all the good things that uh, these rich liberals say they want to do, like they want to help the poor, they want to uh, give their money away. Well, Madero and his wife were actually doing those things. Luckily, they had a lot of money to give away, so they never became poor. But um, when uh, when Diaz or when uh, Madero read that Diaz wasn't seeking re-election, his dead brother Raúl, who burned himself because he was an idiot. Um, he told him that he needed to run for office and do his charity work uh, within the state, make the state do the charity work is why he was running because it was a moral imperative that the state provide for the people. And uh, so in 1910, uh, he's running this campaign and everybody's laughing. He was like, Oh, look at this weird guy. Like there's cartoons from the time and where he's wearing like a big swami hat, like uh the Johnny Carson thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember what that was called. And I've only seen YouTube clips, but anyway, uh, like making fun of him. Uh, it's like, Oh yeah, this weird guy talking to ghosts, telling him to run for president. Yeah. It's, that's cool. It's like vermin Supreme running for president. And, uh, but then he starts like actually doing these things, like, uh, writing out a plan, like how, after the revolution, how, or actually at the time it was presidential succession, 
when he wins the presidential succession, uh, you'll have um, basically a welfare state. And that was far beyond what uh, Diaz wanted coming after him. So he threw him in jail. And the two weeks that Madero spent in jail, uh, he channeled a book, um, which is um, the Spirit Manual. He channeled this. He didn't write it himself. He said he did not write it. He didn't even sign his name to it. He signed it a pen named Bima because Bima was writing it. Um, it's uh, B-H-I-M-A. Yeah. And uh, he wrote an entire book. Uh, uh, he was only in jail for two weeks because Diaz put him in jail, uh, stole the election, let him out of jail. But he was supposed to say stay in um, the state of San Luis Potosi. And he snuck out of there, went to Houston. Like uh, Jake has said on Twitter, everybody goes to Houston to play, plot a plan San, against the government. San Antonio, <laughs> and, actually. But, uh, oh, San Antonio? Oh, okay. <laughs> I've only been to both like 24 hours at a total, so I don't know Texas at all. Um, but the uh, so the Mexican Revolution is being planned in Houston. Um, the plan of San Luis is saying at exactly 6 p.m. November 20th, uh, 1910, the revolution will begin. Um, he he was using his spiritist uh, circles to like spread this message around. So and these weren't just like little parlor like 20 friends getting together. There's like thousands of people. Uh, doing this in big like tents and fairgrounds so he's using that as a political platform now he's got all these people that are already there to listen to some far out bullshit and he's like also we need to throw the government (laughs) we need to overthrow the government (laughs) they're like yeah Yeah. yeah, dude who told you that Uh, Bima told me like you're not going to question Bima now are you (laughs) and so and this is why the US ambassador constantly called him a lunatic because <laughs> that's that's lunacy it's like that's an incredible uh grift to like go to these places and be like let me read your palm let me read your tarot cards um yeah bms says we need to overthrow the government so get your guns let's do it and now the the specific date of the revolution um history books are all constantly not sure of why there was such specificity for that to say, Oh, well maybe he was just, he was a lunatic. So that's why he chose this very specific time because a revolution doesn't have like an appointment. You don't put it in your date book to throw a revolution. But the reason that Madero did that was because he was using electional astrology. And in short, I've already rambled a bunch, but in short, uh, electional astrology is the method of tracking the, the most auspicious day for the best outcome of an event. So uh, using the, the traits of like metaphorical traits of planets and placements to uh, the, the hour in relation to cycles, eclipses, ingresses, whole bunch of uh, shit. Um, but Mandero is about as knowledgeable in astrology as I am. And neither, neither one of us are. <laughs> but we've both picked up a passable amount to be able to like sort of do it. So on November 20th, 1910, at 6 p.m. in Mexico City, Mars was 10 degrees in the hour of Jupiter. And I think most people know that like Mars is associated with like the Red War. It's the war planet. But uh, Jupiter 
has the traits of muck and success. And Jupiter is a what's called a benefic planet, and Mars is a malefic planet. If you have a malefic planet in the hour of a uh, benefic, then uh, ideally this should be an auspicious time to wage war because um, Jupiter aids you in whatever you want to do. But Jupiter's confidence can be overstated, and Madero's crew definitely got lost in the dark riding across the border on November 18th, the way to the revolution. Um, when they finally met up with what they were expecting to be thousands of people armed to the fucking teeth, it was his uncle and 10 people. <laughs> so, but the revolution actually did take off on that day and that time on November 20th, 1910 at 6 PM in the Northern States, um, rebel groups completely unaffiliated with Madero had no Madarista ideas, um, broke out into revolution or broke out into revolt. And, uh, one of those rebels was Pancho Villa in Durango. So the electional astrology did show that it was auspicious. It was an auspicious day to use, um, warlike Mars and lucky Jupiter to wage a war just wasn't Madero's war. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and if, like this sounds crazy i mean this we know this because there's this writer well I'll, I'll probably link the book obviously in the show notes i don't have it on hand it's in another window or something and i've got a million notes out in front of me but there's a writer who like went to mexico and just went through his library and found this book and he wrote all this stuff in the damn book and you know no one's really bothered to translate it into english until now or until recently and, and so um, she was the first one to translate it in 2013 first time it's been in english and uh, interesting side note, the reason that she was able to get access to his library is because her husband was the deputy director of the IMF for the uh, president's uh, the presidency of uh, shit. Who was it? Uh, Nieto? Is that? I don't think yeah. that's right. Um, but uh, and he barely won. People think that he stole the election from uh, uh, Amlo. Amlo. Lopez yeah. Oper- um. Okay, let's move forward a little bit because, uh, yeah, this causes him to, um, you know, to to just out of luck or you know the fucking stars or whatever, end up uh coming upon these these things that'll be these great forces, these great weapons for him, these generals like Pancho Villa. Pancho Villa is this, um, you know, uh, I think he's not as much of a a peasant as maybe the legend is. He's a man with a legend around him for sure, and. <laughs> for good reason i mean he's an incredible fighter um he his entire story through these battles is hijacking trains and blowing shit up with dynamite um he fucking at one point we're gonna move around a little bit laterally here but uh but to skip forward a little bit you know he fights for madero and then madero eventually wins um, and becomes president, and Madero's presidency falls apart because he doesn't know what he's doing, and he's too moderate. He's kind of a centrist. I think of it a little bit like an Obama, like he just promised a bunch of shit, and then he just both sides to everything. And uh, Madero's got this general, Huerta, who's like, you know, this fucking drunk, angry, crude, violent asshole who just wants power. He just thinks militarily. And, um, you know, Villa is still working for Madero, and he's working with Huerta, and Huerta's like... 
uh, trying to get rid of Via at one point, and so he throws him in, uh, or he, he arrests him for, you know, something trumped up, like, oh, you took a horse and you didn't have a license for it or something, and he's going to execute him, and Madero isn't president yet. He's still interim president, because he's, you know, a Boy Scout, and he's, oh, we're going to have an election and shit. Um, so he's like, well, I can't do anything for you, but he, he hears about it, and he eventually, in the nick of time, sends an order in to not execute Madero. So he slips him from the noose, right? Like, right as they're about to kill him. And Pancho Villa, or I mean, sorry, Madero d- saves Pancho Villa, is what I'm saying, from Huerta. Um, and, but instead of, you know, he doesn't, Villa doesn't get fully saved, though. He still has to go to prison because, like I said, Madero's a Boy Scout, and he's like, oh, we got to, you know, follow the rule of law. So Villa's in jail. And this is my favorite part of the whole story, I think. <laughs> Villa's in jail, and he's getting super radicalized. He's reading a lot of theories. He also reads The Three Musketeers and Don Quixote and shit. He's bored, and he essentially starts talking to his jailer. And he convinces his jailer eventually to help him break out. The jailer brings <laughs> him a suit, and he opens the gate, and Pancho Villa fucking leaves in a full suit, right? And he travels to Los Angeles. And he decides in Los Angeles, he's kind of mad at Madero, but then Madero gets killed. And when he gets killed by Huerta, he decides, man, I fucking love Madero. That was my boy for life. I have to avenge his death. And so he decides he's going to overthrow Huerta, the entire Mexican government. He just decides this from Los Angeles. And And he decides to start doing it with like six guys, like a seven, eight man gang. He just starts a fucking street gang and he walks back to goddamn uh, <laughs> Mexico with like these eight guys. One of the eight guys is the jailer <laughs> because he was just, Pancho Villa was that cool that that dude quit his job <laughs> and joined him. It's so fucking funny. Um, you know, so Madero or uh, Pancho Villa, rather i think i feel like move these names around a little bit but pancho villa is this guy with these legends around him and shit and at first he starts against all odds and it doesn't look like it's gonna work out but eventually he just fucking culminates by winning all these battles in an unlikely way into forming this thing called the uh, division del norte which is this big band of you know soldiers but there's also like you know there's entire families traveling with him in this big caravan that he's just driving down the north in there's like uh women who are fighting even though he kind of doesn't want them to because he's still a misogynist um there's children there's like a film crew from america that's filming him and he's he's the star of his own movie that's shown in america which is crazy because later on he fights america um incredible figure (laughs) yeah you can't even see it anymore um so there, there are there there are hilarious like a like old cartoons of when when the U.S. finally went after uh, Via, which you might get to in the in a little bit, but of like I mean hilarious but outdated and also weirdly racist cartoons of like Uncle Sam jumping over the uh, border with Mexico with a gun in his hand chasing chasing Pancho Villa around. So uh, yeah, he he made a lot of enemies and just to zoom out and help people catch up with the timeline here, um, you know Diaz is ousted from power. And he has to leave and just go to France, never come back to the country. That was in 1911. Madero gets elected president in 1911. Um, and, you know, his his close first top-notch general, Huerta, ends up assassinating him three years later and then takes the presidency over. And so now we're in 1913 through 1914 is where Huerta um, is the president. So just to catch people up on that basic timeline. Absolutely. Uh, one more thing about the, like, Villa's just cowboy legend thing is um well a couple of things he, the song he his nickname was the cockroach he is a game of thrones character and the song <laughs> la cucaracha is about him and wow 
Yeah, <laughs> I you know, I mean, it might be a folk thing. It might be not be a hundred percent possible to prove that. There's um, a lot of variations. Yeah, um, and bigger in the revolution with like every every faction had a a verse that was like "fuck you, you're stupid." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is during a time when like you know songs would travel around culture like that like around society it was really fucking cool it was a little remnant of the oral tradition before we all just could communicate all the time right before all those power lines came in right and um he also was very popular because he was a robin hood figure so he, like i said he was not as political at the beginning but when this started happening he would start to take towns and when he took a town he would Order his men, like, he was one of those generals that would say, no, 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 you cannot rape, you cannot pillage, you redistribute this shit and you give it back to them. And that is what made his power grow because people started to realize, oh, there's this, like, we can, we should get behind this guy. There's actually a reason for this. This isn't someone who's trying to exploit us. It's the exact opposite, right? And so for this reason, he, he starts to, like, word of him starts to travel across, you know, the Mexico City down to the state of Morelos, south of it, where... Zapata is rising. Um, do you think, Brett, maybe you could tell us about Zapata? Yeah, so Zapata was um, basically a an organic uh, peasant leader. He was sort of thrusted forward as the leader of um, the peasants and indigenous people in the south. So if you think of Pancho Villa up north doing a lot of crazy shit, um, Zapata was in the south doing slightly less crazy shit, but basically, you know, doing doing raids against their enemies and fighting for revolution as opposed to basic reform. And this is somebody, Zapata, who really comes from the lower classes, unlike somebody like Madero, who is, you know, a liberal, wealthy, landowning, basically elite, but also a reformist. Madero was too liberal for the conservatives, and he was too, you know, conservative for the revolution uh, revolutionaries. And so Zapata was really the, the face and the leader of these uh, of the, of the revolutionary energies from the south and um, uh, a, a peasant leader himself. So he I don't really know much about his connection with Pancho Villa. They, they operated together a lot, depending on who was in, who was in the presidency and, and who were their enemies at the time. But both of them were really representatives of the revolutionary um, you know, left wing, you know, influence from anarchism, etc. They were the face of those movements. And I, I know Zapata himself actually even wrote a letter once to to Lenin during this time. Um, I, we don't know if it ever got to Lenin, but there was an attempt to communicate even across international lines and, and sort of connect up uh, those revolutionary struggles. So that's at least of, of interesting note. Yeah, Zapata started off as a peasant. Like he just was a farmer and they were fighting the Hacendados and eventually he was just the guy who would show up up and kick their asses in the field and eventually in Morelos they made him like you know their representative they were like this guy's fucking awesome right and so as he started to fight on behalf of this thing this he's defending his sacred home of Morelos uh, he started to become more theoretical because really like a lot of his fight is is not that specifically anarchists like a lot of the times it seems like he's just trying to get them to fucking leave his state alone so they can just keep living the way they're living but he does read and become radicalized at some point and he reads like the history of the french revolution for example and sort of cites the jacobins as an ins inspiration and you know something that they need to do right um but he does it's he has an interesting relationship with Pancho Villa in that they hear word of each other and they're sort of communicating and coordinating throughout this whole thing and I don't know if we're going to get through the entire history just for time but eventually way later in the story when they're uh you know they they've both allied with uh Carranza 
who uh you know comes down way later in the story zapata's this guy who like you know he fought for madero and that was the last time he fought for like uh a leader like that until later on he, he worked with carranza but he fucking hated carranza he just it was a tenuous uh allyship him pancho villa and carranza uh when they were trying to overthrow huerta and uh so Villa and Zapata had not met each other, but they'd been communicating and hearing legend of each other. And they finally meet way, way, way further into the story, like near the end of it. Uh, and when they meet for the first time, it's interesting. There's a great photograph of them. They're kind of awkwardly hanging mm-hmm. out with each other. And Pancho Villa is this big, boisterous, you know, crazy, uh, tall, kind of lighter skinned guy. Um, Villa is this really intense. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Zapata is this really intense, um, you know, darker skinned guy with like the big sombrero and the fucking you know uh what do you call them the the silver buckles and yeah the bandolier and everything and uh at first they like don't know what to talk about they're just like hey big fan you know we finally meet (laughs) and uh, eventually zapata orders a fucking shot of cognac to try to break the ice and via doesn't drink but he doesn't want to tell him that so he like drinks it and then he starts coughing and shit and it's really awkward and then like they're just like Jesus, this is going terribly, right? And then they both just start talking about how much they hate Carranza, and a friendship is born, you know, over just fucking hating this other guy that they're working with. <laughs> um, yeah, but Zapata is really interesting because you know he really doesn't bend the way everyone else does. He doesn't um, compromise, and eventually he's killed by Carranza's men. And his legend lives on, though, because he fucking didn't compromise and he didn't do this shit where you get into power. He didn't want to be, you know, the president or anything like that. Uh, He really was fighting for land reform, not for he was fighting for social reasons, not political reasons. That's the distinction that's kind of important in a lot of this. Um, And just for time, maybe uh, we can sort of circle back to some things. But the third figure I really wanted to get to in this whole story is the one that is left out of a lot of Western, you know, or not Western, but like just a lot of conventional tellings of the story of the Mexican Revolution, which is Ricardo Flores Magón, who is this guy who's, you know, um, he's not middle class, but he did go to school. Uh, he's from Southern Mexico in Oaxaca. He's from a town called let me find it um he was born in san antonio hello chitlan which is now named after him it's uh his name is tacked onto the end of it uh which is crazy there's a fuck his town's named after him and you never hear about this guy you know um he was radicalized in school he grew up during diaz and uh you know worked for uh student groups and you know protested against diaz and he read a lot of theory um, his ba- his main influence was Kropotkin. Um, he loved Conquest of Bread. He wrote for uh, this publication called Democrata, and eventually, and this is a f- incredible detail, um, he wrote for a publication called El Hijo del Awizote, which means uh, the son of Awizote, which is this Aztec um like dog creature that has like a hand on its tail and spikes on its back and shit and i'm not sure but i think that the joke was the son of a bitch like it's the son of a dog creature thing um because it was a satire newspaper so flores magone was like wrote in like the fucking onion and he got thrown in jail a bunch of times for making fun of Porfirio diaz in it the dude was a fucking comedian and an anarchist um <laughs> he rules uh and then eventually he founds and edits Regeneración, which is his anarchist newspaper. And 
he writes it with a few of his brothers and a bunch of people around him. And it's really dangerous. He keeps getting thrown in jail by Diaz for, you know, for insulting the president is the crime or whatever. He eventually has to flee. Like he just, it's like, all right, this isn't going to work in Mexico. Um, and so he flees to San Antonio and then LA and then St. Louis. And eventually to, he has to go to Canada to get away from Porfirio Diaz. And Diaz is still able to get the U S authorities to throw him in jail. Um, but during all this time, when he's moving around and, and publishing Regeneración, he is organizing with the Wobblies. He's organizing these minor strikes and things that, you know, tragically kind of don't really work out. Um, and he's he's kind of like a Stalin in certain areas where, like, he just keeps getting his fucking printing press broken by the Pinkertons and shit and just has to bust out of jail and fucking set it back up and keep making the damn newspaper. Um <laughs> he's a podcaster uh so he <laughs> also um you know eventually does get behind a couple of popular uprisings where he tries to attack diaz and he attacks him in actually i'll get to that in a second uh we first we, we should start about the plm he founds this uh party that's you know a low-key anarchist political party but it's called the liberal party it's called the partido liberal mexicana and he says that the reason it's not called the Anarchist Party is because of branding. Like, he's like, they won't come with us. We have to trick these people into, you know, getting on board, which is like, you know, does that sound fucking familiar? <laughs> you know? Um, and so he founds this party and he gets behind these uprisings and, you know, he, he tries to attack Perfigo Diaz a couple times. He doesn't really actually get a revolt off the ground. But uh, one of them, it happens in 1906. And in 1906... One of his men, who is also a writer for Regeneración, named Juan Jose Arredondo, uh, teams up with his partner Trinidad Garcia, and they overtake Juarez, Mexico, in the northern state. Uh, this is my great, great, great grandfather. Um, wow. Yeah, it's really cool. They took awesome. they took the main plaza for a day, and they held it. This is important by cutting the telephone lines and uh, expropriating money from the bank. And I think this is a really cool detail because there are these two things, these two veins in the whole story of the Mexican Revolution, which are fighting against the industrialization, the technology that is the mechanism by which all of this, you know, property and capitalism permeates itself and obviously redistributing the fucking wealth, right? And they had one brief moment of glory where they were able to do both of those things, and then they got their ass kicked, right? <laughs> um, this is my grandmother's grandfather, um, or great-grandfather. Uh, I talked to her about it, and she told me that she didn't even know, really, the story until you know her, her grandmother, who she was raised by, started talking about it later on in her life, and eventually she was... Um, interviewed by a magazine in the 60s or someone came knocking at her door about it and she started to realize this and then we started to look into it and it's really funny because i think she thought you know i wasn't gonna like this guy and like because you know generational shit they don't think <laughs> like we do um this is the coolest thing i've ever heard in my fucking life i'm obsessed with it um but i'm still really early into really researching the life of this guy so if anyone's listening to this and uh and it, i they speak and tr can translate Spanish better than me, please help me out because I'm from a generation of fucking Mexican immigrants where we had to not speak Spanish. So, um, my Spanish sucks. Uh, I'm doing my Duolingo, but I don't think I have the fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Magon, Magon 
and his people are really interesting because you know, he is the guy who really tried to bring in anarchism with a capital A into Mexico. Um, he met with uh, Emma Goldman, you know, he communicated with all these other intellectuals. He really went from someone who was just a college student to someone who really, really, really tried to fight all of this with like information, you know, um, he kept getting thrown in jail over his life and would get out and just immediately go back to work about it. I think there was another uprising in 1911. Um, and at one point when Madero was in revolt way, way, way early back before he became president, when Madero was still a ridiculous, you know, uh, force in the North that wasn't even really banded with the rebels yet. Um, actually, no, what this, this was after Madero, uh, was all, it was almost to the presidency. Sorry, I got that wrong. Madero <laughs> convinced Magon's men, or tried to convince them rather, to fight for him by saying that Magon had agreed to be his VP. So this guy was almost vice president. But the thing is, Magon had never agreed to be his vice president. He was lying uh, because Magon was <laughs> in jail and he couldn't communicate with his people. So he couldn't say, this is fucking bullshit. I don't believe in what Madero's talking about. Madero fucking hated... or uh, uh, Magon fucking hated Madero. He thought he was, a, you know, a lib. Um, <laughs> so his name was on the ticket, and he was in jail, and he didn't even fucking know it, and Madero was lying about it. It's crazy. Um, he eventually died uh, at, in jail after he was arrested under the Espionage Act during all of that shit, the shit that, like, Eugene Debs got arrested for and stuff. Also, he, he communicated with Eugene Debs in the U.S., um, he died in his jail cell. He said he was sick. He had diabetes. And, uh, some people think he was assassinated in there eventually, you know? Um, that's, uh, I think pretty much all I've got from McGon. So, yeah, I think what I, what I take away from this entire story is just the, the deep complexity of, of the situation. When we talk about the Mexican revolution, we're not talking about a necessarily, you know, singular event separated from the rest of history with a with a specific starting date and an ending date, but we're we're really describing a period of of conflict between multiple different parties, multiple different interests. As I said, uh, U.S. imperialism popping its head in, in the picture as well, and so this entire period from 1910 to 1920, roughly. Um, was really foundational for uh, what came after in, in Mexico and the constitution that arose out of it, even given the assassination of people like Zapata. Uh, the constitution that came out, I think in 1917 it was, was at the time perhaps the single most progressive constitution um, in, the, in the world at that time. So, you know, a lot of what happened um, at, at that period of time is really instrumental, not only to, to the rest of the history of Mexico, but really had implications for, for the entire world and was sort of of a microcosmic example of bigger struggles that were happening the world over. So uh, fascinating history. We'll never be able to cover it all. I urge people to to look into to this story because the Mexican Revolution, that historical period, it's kind of like fractals. The, you know, the deeper you look in, the more nuance, the more complexity, the more information there is. So um, I hope people check that out. And if they're interested in just a more straightforward history of the revolution itself, we do have an episode on Revolutionary Left Radio called The Mexican Revolution and the Zapatistas which just sort of go through that history and then talk about its influence on the movement of the Zapatistas, which are still in existence right now. I guess, you know, without really going through event by event, the sort of uh, story of what happens after Madero is murdered, um, 
you know, I just wanted to talk about some broad historical resonances, some things that actually made it out of this whole conflict. Um, because, you know, when Madero is murdered and then Huerta installs himself, all hell breaks loose and then the real fucking story begins. You know, you have all these conflicts and all these tenuous alliances and things and all these people competing for the presidency and then having coups against them and stuff like that. I mean, we didn't even get to like the, uh, the, 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 the fucking 10 days. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the, I guess the main broad stroke through this whole thing, the broad vein, uh, I would say is interesting about it in regards to other revolutions is probably the federalism, the anarchism and the, you know, anarcho syndicalism. This is not, really like a russian style you know vanguard uh communist situation um it's 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 i it's interesting they're they're fighting against centralized power because that's the thing that has kept them down for so long right and so uh you have zapata and you have magon with the wobblies sort of arguing for just just a return to this decentralized place where all these states would have their own um you know their own power and yeah i don't know it's like kind of a, a tragic story because it just they don't really get it but the but because they fought so hard for it you do see things later on in the presidencies of like um i don't know like caius and then cardenas eventually who you know he nationalized oil and there's like a national bank and so there, there are these there are these reforms that get made and like they do eventually get some land reform done. And it's interesting because it's, it's not radical enough for the Zapatistas. Um, and it's too radical for the rich. Um, but you know, they basically put the state in control of land. So it eliminates the Hacendado system, but it also, uh, you know, it's, it's just the fucking, government is running it now or whatever so they never really achieve the full destruction of the government that they want um i don't know i don't really know where to land with this you know, we never really get back to where we want this to be which is egalitarian it's almost like a thing you look at and you go i guess fuck maybe we are to resign to the fact that it will never exist again or maybe we become Zapatistas and carry on this fight in, you know, against all odds because, uh, because, you know, you do see Zapata's name become reinvoked decades and decades later in 1994 when NAFTA's passed and these indigenous activists in Chiapas are aware of the disastrous effects that the North American free trade agreement is going to cause on, uh, you know, their rights to their own fucking land. And so they call themselves the Zapatistas, not because they're directly linked to the old Zapatistas, but in homage, you know, in like the way that Jacobin is called Jacobin, you know? Um, I don't know. I have no idea how this effect uh, relates to coronavirus. <laughs> I don't know. I guess, like, the coronavirus is the big bad that comes after government, like we were describing, <laughs> you know, the crown and then the fucking capitalists and then the government and then 
now we're just fighting a virus. Um, and we are all cordoned off into our little tiny states and learning to be self-sustaining <laughs> and growing our own vegetables and shit again. The corona being the crown, so maybe we're headed towards the the monarchy of the coronavirus. Oh my god, the corona is a crown. Yeah. That's, that's why it's called that. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh fuck, we're back. Got it full circle. All right. Um yeah, I think that's probably a good stopping point. I'm I'm definitely not done researching this or reading about it. There's a lot of details that are really great that I didn't really get to. I mean, there's at one point there's like fucking this guy Obregón is like thinks he's defeated in battle and he goes to pull out his gun to kill himself and his gun doesn't work because his assistant had accidentally taken the ammo out <laughs> and then he wins the battle it's fucking crazy craziest story ever fucking told this needs to be made into uh now they'd ruin it i was gonna say a tv show but it would suck um i don't know read your history books people it would just end up being the uh three amigos but 90 minutes longer <laughs> yeah all right, well, I, we should probably wrap up, and um, you know, this will not be the last we ever talk about this, but obviously thanks to Brett for coming on, and um, we should plug stuff. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I love this collab. If anybody wants to find out more about my work, you can go to revolutionaryleftradio.com, and it's all there. Nestor, what do you got? Um, yeah, follow me on Twitter, harvest underscore goth. Uh, I host Black Banner Magic. It's anarchist magic podcast about uh overthrowing the state with the power of the mind Ooh. got a patreon it's got one patron so it's the third time i've started it <laughs> i keep deleting my patreon because i'm like fuck this i i'm not good at talking i'm gonna i'm bad with the words i'm gonna stop that so i delete my patreon and then it's like shit there was money connected to that <laughs> and um other than that i am uh in the preliminary stages of writing a book um, it is a true crime book about a Satanist murder in my hometown. So that probably won't be out for like two years. So keep that in the back of your mind because you'll never remember who I am after this. <laughs> what do you got? Cool. cool. Um, yeah. Uh, listen to my podcast. If you're, if you're listening to this on one of the other, and we're, we're cross broadcasting this or whatever on everyone's feed, but my show is called pod damn America. If you don't know, um, leftist comedian podcast thing. Um, Sign up for our Patreon. Um, it's my main job right now. My only job, really. If you are into this and you want to hear more, uh, bonus episodes and everything. I also have another show called Why You Mad, which is uh, me and my friend Luisa Diaz, who is an anthropologist and comedy booker. We talk a lot of theory and stuff and a lot of stand-up comedy, sort of con- try to connect the two. That's uh, maybe the, the mission of the show. How What, what does Lacan have to do with uh, the Red Fox wash your ass bit? Listen to that show to find out. Um... <laughs> And uh, my handle on Twitter is Feral Jokes, F-E-R-A-L-J-O-K-E-S. It's an anagram for my name, Jake Flores. Um, that's my handle on everything. I used to be a stand-up comedian before, you know, <laughs> we stopped being able to go outside. So uh, maybe someday I'll do that again. I'll probably have a new album coming out soon that I recorded before coronavirus. And um, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, oh, I forgot to even mention like my homeland security thing parallels with uh flores mcgoon oh fuck i'll get to that later and you're uh you're reading little women <laughs> i am i gotta get back to that i started realizing that you uh people are paying you to read a lot so i think somebody out there has like a sapiosexual fandom kink yeah <laughs>
I am I the Findom or am I the pay pig? I can't tell. Uh, but I'll keep reading Little Women, no matter what this, the, <laughs> no matter what the answer is. Because um, I started reading it as a joke, and now I'm kind of into it. It's kind of a good book. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Nestor. Hey, well, thank you for coming on again. It's finished. Kiss the key of my friend